This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from San Diego, California and the Omni Hotel and having a great time doing it in one of my favorite cities in California. San Diego to me is one of the most manageable cities in California, one of the most beautiful cities. It's a well-managed city. Imagine a place that's got 70 miles of beaches. And of course, you have the San Diego Zoo, Balboa Park, and it's home to the San Diego Padres. I wish they would do a better job of winning, but they have a great stadium, which in fact is attached at the hip to this hotel. You can just basically walk four minutes from the hotel over a bridge and you are basically at the ballpark. How cool is that? Because it is in the heart of the historic gas lamp quarter, and it's only 15 minutes away from San Diego International Airport, otherwise known as Lindbergh Field. Another manageable airport. I mean, you're never more than 15 minutes away from anything in San Diego, and in many cases, that's just by walking. It's a very, very cool place. Uh, joining me now, in fact, a returning guest. He's the writer, food critic, and editor-at-large for San Diego Magazine, Troy Johnson, how are you, man? I'm doing so well. It's been raining here for the last couple of days. So I've been in my rain shelter, Peter. That's okay, but yeah, that means you're probably eating more. Yes, yes. I, I, I have canned soup down there. It's kind of like a bomb shelter in San Diego because, honestly, it doesn't happen very often. So when it does... It, it never rains in Southern California. Yeah. I, chi- I remember the song. Chicken yeah. Little's everywhere, man. We're done. Okay, good. So now that you've come out from the rain, mm-hmm. let's talk about what's happened since the last time we had you on the show. I mean, what's the biggest boom here in, San, in the San Diego food scene? And pretty much everything. I mean, at, at this point, we're kind of trying to protect our soul because everybody's coming around sniffing for it, to be quite honest with you. The Rip Van Winkle of California, as I've always said San Diego is, is waking up. Every um, major news outlet is pointing to San Diego as being the next big food boom. Because? Because we've got a bunch of different things coming in. We just got a Dentai Fung, which is set up. I mean, basically, Now, set- that sounds either like something has to be surgically removed 
It is absolutely. What is it? It's it's surgery on a plate. They're soup dumplings. It's a classic Shanghai specialty. You take these really micro thin dumplings and you you put like cubes of soup with pork filling in it. Then you steam them and they come out these slippery, beautiful like pockets, purses of soup. So you've got broth inside. And this is a time Thai- I've never heard poetry attached to broth, <laughs> but I just heard it now. I mean, it's it really is one of the more, like, one more fun things to eat in the world. But this this chain specifically came out they won a michelin star over in hong kong they've got over 130 locations they just opened as 10,000 a soup place with a michelin star uh-huh uh-huh because it's a taiwanese and shanghai specialty and they just arrived in san diego so this is really big news it's this 10,000 square foot thing so now everybody's chasing these things called shaolambao that's the name of, yeah, that's how you say it in chinese shaolambao soup dumplings so every place is starting to serve them now everybody's got you know a version a crazy chefy version and We've got Michelin star chefs. Michael Mina is going to be opening up a spot here. We have two Italian chefs that have two two Michelin stars. They're going to open a spot under Mr. A's in Bankers Hill. We've got another um, Korean-American, used to be a pro snowboarder. Now he's a Michelin star chef opening downtown. I mean, San Diego is... You know, we've gotten to the point now where when you can be a former pro snowboarder and now a Michelin chef... Everybody is a celebrity chef. I, I slacked off too much, Peter. You know, I didn't do the snowboarding thing. I didn't do the celebrity chef thing. Yeah, you thing. came so close. You I, came so close. I, I did. I did. But let's go back to the soup thing because the turnover rate in restaurants these days mm-hmm. is huge. Huge. You know, we, I was just talking to a lot of uh, restaurateurs in San Diego. What we're really struggling with, um, obviously, you know, with the minimum wage going up, I think people are really just trying to understand how to staff their, their restaurants because, you know, restaurants have a. Uh, well, let's go back to the Danny Meyer thing because the, Danny Meyer, for those of you who don't know, he's been on my show before. Mm-hmm. He's a restaurateur in New York and, and, and a, a, a celebrated one for good reason. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea that tipping was not fair, tipping was an insult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so his policy at his restaurants was they're going to adjust the prices, but there will be no tipping. And that means everybody gets to share in it, including the guys busting the tables and cleaning the dishes. It's about time because the back of the house, the guys that cook, the guys that clean the dishes have been underpaid forever in the front of the house. I was speaking with one high-end restaurateur here in San Diego. He had a server that was working 30 hours a week, making $70,000 a year, while his cook was making $12 in the back of the house. So what we're seeing in San Diego is literally servers are going out. Every server is getting jettisoned. Everybody's opening up um, yeah, counter service models, quick service. You go to a counter, you look at the menu, you order it, it gets delivered to your table, and somebody busses it off. The servers, which sadly, I mean, this was a, a way that funded a middle class of America, are going by the wayside. Everything is either fine dining or zero service whatsoever. Well, I mean, I grew up with the idea that if you really behaved, your parents would let you go out to dinner with them on a Saturday <laughs> night, you know? I mean, that was a big deal, right? Right? Is, is it still a big deal? It still is a big deal. I mean, especially in San Diego, again, because, I mean, 10 years ago, Peter, if you had come, I mean, I, I know you did come here, you know, I mean, 10 years ago in, in San Diego, you know, you wanted to go out, it was, you know, you'd eat crickets because that was the sound of the dining scene, you know? I mean, there was nothing no, here. No, you were an early town. Yeah. You were a very early town 10 years ago. Right, absolutely. There was nothing here. And now, because everybody realized, all these chefs are coming from Vegas, they're coming from New York, they realize that when they, you know, if they open up a restaurant after working, you know, at CIA, you know, go, getting their degree and then working for some famous chef, if they open up a restaurant in New York, they're just one star in a constellation of stars. San Diego had all this marketplace open to make a difference, and they're all starting to come here. And it's just, I mean, the scene is, I've never seen it in my 10 years, actually 12 years now of covering food, never seen it on a precipice of just explosion. And of course, celebrity chefs to me are like the, the DJs that get $100,000 in Vegas for one night. Mm-hmm. They, have a, they have a following when they show, they, when, if that guy opens up a restaurant, people show up because they know he's in town. Absolutely. I mean, what, what you really got to watch out for with these celebrity chefs. I mean, I love celebrity chefs because they earn their, their chops. Being a chef is not an easy life. I mean, you were, I heard a, um, one of you guys talk about boot camp. It is boot camp times 10, right? You right. know, it's, you take years and years and years of cutting carrots until all you see when you fall asleep at night is carrots, you know? And then finally you make it up to sous chef, to chef de cuisine, to executive chef. It takes years. And when you finally make your name, you earned it. But the problem with, it, with celebrity chef restaurants, you don't know who's on the line. Because those guys, a lot of times they'll come down, slap their name on it, talk to the, you know, the crew and say, here's my menu. Have a great time. I'll see you in a year. Yeah, because they don't, they, if, how can you be a celebrity chef and maintain that quality 
if you've got 20 locations. Exactly. So that's what we're going to see with all these these Michelin star chefs coming to San Diego. If they have a really well-executed staff, they've got a plan, they've got quality control, this city is going to explode. And then, of course, you have to figure out pricing. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out, you know, the impact of the, uh, for lack of a better word, the Uber culture mm-hmm. of, of now people just want people to deliver their food and they don't even want to have the experience. One of the most interesting things that we're seeing in San Diego, and there's a, one of my good friends from Food Network, um, he has a four restaurants, all of which don't exist in a physical world. So he has a commissary kitchen and every single area of the kitchen is a different entirely restaurant that is only exists on Uber Eats or those meal delivery services. One's a fried chicken restaurant, one's an Asian restaurant, everything else. But he's a four-star Food Network chef, and he has basically virtual restaurants. But it's a commissary kitchen, so you're not going there. No, nobody, nobody can actually go to this restaurant, but it exists on Uber. Wow. Isn't that crazy? But isn't that scary? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 fine dining, I mean, look, at the end of the day... Well, first of all, I hate the word fine dining. Because that means, you know, like I, I, like I don't want to eat in your crappy dining room, so I'll eat in your fine dining room. But I mean, the, the concept of it, though, I get. Yeah. And it's, it's an endangered species. It definitely is. We're wondering if we need it all at the end of the day. I mean, I think, I think nowadays people are a lot more excited just going in and kind of, they're like, you know, I can serve myself. I don't necessarily even want to tip. I don't need all this. You know, you don't want somebody lording over you and hawking your water. You know, like, that water looks approximately 65% full, Peter. And you want some more water? How are you? Before you've taken that first bite, they're like, how delicious is that? You're like, I haven't even looked at my meal yet. Come on. You know, like, leave me alone. You know, so I think that, you know, people just want to go in, order. At a, at a counter, leave themselves alone. They know how to dine out now. America's a dining out culture. Although, let me be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. What I miss at some restaurants these days is the, just the opportunity for a conversation. Normally, I get them on a satellite phone. Normally, I get them at sea. Normally, I get them on some kind of communication device. I never get them in person. But you see, we're in San Diego, and he actually lives in Oceanside, which is just a train ride away. away. And he happened to be in the same town that I was. So I said, get your you-know-what down here so we can get you (laughs) on the show. Because, you know, I like to say I'm a collector. uh, But when it comes to uh, all things ocean liners, this guy is the collector of history, of, of archival data, uh, of, of iconic things. Uh, and, of course, he does our show from time to time whenever we can find him around the world. Peter Canego, welcome. Peter, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for not being in some far-off location where it's impossible to join you in person. Well, let's just discuss. I, I, I want everybody who listens to the show to know I've been to your house. It's outrageous because I'm, <laughs> I'm a history buff. But your house is a living, working museum because you are a an ocean liner fanatic. Let's call you what you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't Guilty. just write. Yeah, you don't just write about this stuff. You bring it back. I mean, what's? It's, give me an give me an example of like I walk in your house and what's in your living room? Everything in my house, with the exception of the drywall and the floors, is from a ship. I have rebuilt... And we're not talking coasters. No, we're talking like ocean liner, big, beautiful ships that were built in the 1950s No, but I'm saying we're not talking like little ocean liner, uh, coaster commemoratives. We're talking about entire dining sets. We're talking about walls. Yeah, doors, light fixtures, 20-foot panels. And I do have some coasters, by the way. I've I've collected those over the years. So you can, uh, (laughs) you know, don't... You won't be without something to put your drink on. Um, yeah, but I have uh, probably of, of most interest to your listeners might be, you know, the first three ships that sailed for Carnival were these old, beautiful the Mardi, British, the Mardi, Mardi Gras, Gras Carnival, yeah. and the Festival. Yeah. They were big, beautiful British ocean liners originally, steamships. They were gorgeous, traditionally manufactured ships with real wood paneling, etched glass, brass trim, real navigation equipment, all the kind of stuff that you'll never see on a modern cruise ship, which is basically a giant computer and a hotel at sea, basically. So these ships, when they were finally scrapped, I followed them to the scrapyard, and I bought gorgeous Literally? I literally did, and climbed aboard them and pointed out things that I wanted to save, like builder's plates, bells, doors, light fixtures, wood paneling, 
And I brought it all back. And not just those three ships, but another 20 ships are involved in my house. You know, for those people who've been on cruise ships and remember the, the, the Lido deck, on every ship seemed to have a Lido deck. Peter Canego has a Lido deck. I have a Lido deck. I have the Love Boat, the teak wood from the Love Boat, the Island Princess, which is one of the two ships they use for the TV series Love Boat. Pacific Princess is the name we all know. But I did a piece uh, for... Uh, for CBS, no, I didn't. Actually, was it back at NBC days? We did the last sailing of the Pacific Princess oh. in New York with me and Gavin McLeod uh, on know, the bridge, right, taking the ship out. And, and, and he yeah. was with me, yeah. Captain Steubing. You know, <laughs> he's a great guy. Yeah. And actually, part of part of the Love Boat lore, in addition to the teak deck from the Love Boat, that's our patio and the furniture that was in the lobby that people walked down the grand staircase and did their you know photo ops. That furniture is actually on top of this teak decking. <laughs> we have discs that were from the show lounge, these beautifully handcrafted discs that were used in the ceiling, these tiles. And I restored them, and I brought them up to a Love Boat reunion when they were doing the thing on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, my God. And the cast was You are there. out of control. You I'm are, totally out yeah, of control. Yeah. I had them each autograph one of these discs. So I have in my ceiling above the TV room the autographs of all the stars of the love boat on a piece of the original love okay, boat. Okay, to give an so. idea how far back I go with that show, do you have something signed by Charo? No, but she's on my like <laughs> she's on my secondary ceiling list because she wasn't part of the main cast, but she's definitely she's she is love boat. And yeah. all the years I've done this show, I've never heard somebody describe something as a secondary ceiling list. <laughs> well, where there's a space, there's something that has to go on it. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, Please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. My next guest does see a lot of San Diego. He's a San Diego native. And, you know, most guys in his in his field will put in their 20 and retire, but not this guy. He's the <laughs> the, the fire chief of the San Diego Fire Rescue Department. He's been there 31 years. Colin Stell, how are you, chief? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I always like to have fire department members on the show for the simple reason that you've been in everybody's hotel, you've been in everybody's uh, restaurant, you've been in everybody's house. You really know the city, and you have to. I do. Um, I love the city, native here. Um I can't ask for a better city to work in, live in, and I've been very blessed. Here's my question. What are your challenges? Because as you know, in the state of California, we've had a very rough year uh, up north with the wildfires and in Orange County and in San Diego County. And, you know, given mutual aid situations, I'm sure you guys have been busy. We have been busy. And uh, one of our biggest challenges here is uh, in the city, we are spread out. But we've got a lot of homes on the canyon rims and butt up against the open space. We've got 550 linear miles of homes that butt up against those areas. And so those are challenges. That's called kindling. It, it is. It's not only a challenge for us to make sure we protect those communities, but be able to educate those communities as far as their risk. And here's the thing. Where I am, and some of my listeners know I'm also a fireman, we have wind and we have water pressure as our, as our biggest challenges because we're on an island. Um, and sometimes you end up having to, you know, to draft from bodies of water because you just can't get the water pressure. In a situation like we had earlier this summer and, and, and fall in, in California, people don't realize that when these fires get going, they're moving at about one and a half to two miles an hour. That's fast. That is fast. And uh, the firestorms are just, they're unbelievable to, to obviously observe, but to be in is just, is just terrifying. Well, as a fireman, the biggest frustration is when you can't get ahead of it. We, we cannot, and that's what we try to tell the citizens as well. And so when we start looking at evacuation warnings and giving them that information, the, really the best that they can do is have a plan in place and start to evacuate because it doesn't matter how many fire, engine, fire engines and how many firefighters I put in front of some of those firestorms, we're not going to stop it until it, uh, until it wants to stop itself. Well, let's go beyond that and, and tell all the homeowners one thing that they don't actually think about. Your garden hose ain't going to do anything for you. If, if our engine through quarter if our two and a half inch hose is not going to do it and our helicopters are not going to do it their garden hose is not going to do it no right and and the problem with the helicopters is they make one drop and then you have to wait 20 minutes because they got to go out and refill right and again when you're talking about firestorm it's just uh, to get in front of that is is just impossible now let's talk about city stuff here you know on a, on a weekend like we are right now the city fills up it does i mean we're a tourist city year round and so we just don't rely on the summer we uh we have visitors all the time which is a blessing for us plus you got the the Navy here? We do. We have the Navy. We have uh, populations that fill up our communities and our beaches uh, year-round. You know, this reminds you a little bit about how fire service is done in, in places like Las Vegas, because in every major city in the country, your annual budget is based on your 
base population. Well, in Las Vegas, the base population is immaterial because on the weekends it triples. Sure. And that means that, you know, I was with one of the Las Vegas fire rescue guys uh, in one of their stations. We did 41 calls in, in one night. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, name a fire department that does that out of one station. I know. Well, I, I, I will brag a little bit. And we, do have the, we do have the fire station right here in the gas lamp right across from Petco Park. And on New Year's Eve, they ran 32 calls in a 24-hour period. So that is pretty busy for and a And of those 32 house. calls, most of them were medical. They are. They are. We run about 87% of our calls are medical in nature. And in the gas lamp district, you know, every bar and restaurant, people got to be responsible. It's just, uh, it, it's dense down here. There's a lot of people, and that's a great thing for our city, but it's also a challenge for us to be able to provide services. Chief Stoll, for the people who are coming down to San Diego to visit, you know, the tourists, yep. right? In Las Vegas, it's one thing is you can't find a clock. So people can't, they don't take their meds. They forget that they have their own sense of time. There's no perspective or context. What are the, what are your challenges to the people who come to visit San Diego? So uh, the people who come to San Diego really about getting around, making sure that in the downtown area, as they're pedestrians, to be careful of the of the commuters down there. Uh, be and, safe. The tra- and the train. And, and the train and the trolleys. And, and I mean, when you're in a city that you're not familiar with, those can be scary. But, you know, when they're down at the beaches as well, they want to get closer and closer to the beach. Sometimes they want to, you know, they go in the water when they are not, uh, you know, good swimmers. And that that obviously provides a challenge for ours because the lifeguards is part of the fire service as well, or fire department here. So you're doing a lot of water rescue. Yes, we are. And you've got the harbor. Yep. So those are your fireboats. So, so the harbor, the harbor PD takes care of the fireboats there, and we have the fireboats in the bay. Right, but you transport when they come back to the we dock. We do, and we work closely with them. Yes, we do. I mean, given all the recreational opportunities here, those are also operational challenges for you those are and uh and making sure that we provide the the level of services not only for our residents but in anticipation of our tourists and and the res- and the visitors here in the city now i've got to ask you the self-serving question sure. here when people come down here to visit can you do ride-alongs they can we can we can sign them up and, and give them a great experience as well we the want best them to way to it. see a city is to go to your local fire station and ask them if you can ride along <laughs> well i would say and, and but i would certainly uh go in there and visit with them they they love to talk to the visitors they like to find out where they're from and, and brag about our city as well all right can i give everybody the less than subtle hint of the year yes if you're going to go visit a fire station bring cookies well bring cookies or ice cream but <laughs> I knew it. That is. Chief Stell, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. We really me. appreciate it. And when, when's my ride along? Your ride along is uh, right across the street, right there at uh, Station 4. They're ready for you. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's almost inevitable when you come down to San Diego, you're going to see the water. And if you see the water, you're going to see the Navy. And if you see the Navy docked right there is a real piece of history. Just like we have the Intrepid in New York, here in San Diego, we've got the USS Midway with an amazing history as an aircraft carrier literally all around the world. And joining me now, someone knows a little bit about it because he wrote about it, the USS Midway America Shield. Scott McGaugh, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you. Just before we went on the air, you told me, I mean, I know about the Intrepid. I know sure. about the Midway. But there's the Yorktown. There's the Lexington. The Hornet. There's the Hornet and uh, Lexington and, and uh, the USS Midway. There are five aircraft carrier museums in, in the country. Uh, Lexington, uh, the Intrepid, of course, is, is best known, uh, but maybe a lot of people are surprised to learn that the USS Midway Museum is the most visited ship museum in the world. In the world? In the world. And we're only 15 years old. We uh, opened in 2004. 1.4 million visitors a year from around the world. Now, the Midway itself has quite a history. 47 years from one Vietnam, week, Vietnam. Vietnam, starting at the end of World War II, all the way through Operation Desert Storm. 47 years. Longest serving carrier of the 20th century, and visitors on Midway are walking in the footsteps of more than 100,000 sailors whose average age was 19. People forget that. You know, every time I visit an aircraft carrier, like the Stennis, which is birthed out yes, here, yes. you walk on board, there are 6,000 people, but they're kids. They're kids. A year and a half out of high school on Midway defending our freedom and freedom around the world for half a century. Now, unless I'm mistaken, the Midway was actually named for the most decisive battle in 
the history of the world. That's right. The Battle of Midway took place only six months after Pearl Harbor, which is remarkable when you think about it. Outgunned, outmanned, outshipped. Except for one thing, we'd broken the code. Exactly right. We had broken the Japanese code, and we knew they were coming for us, so we got all of our ships out of Pearl Harbor, and we circled back behind them. We ambushed them. We ambushed them. They had no idea. Amazing. And it turned the tide of the war in the Pacific from that point forward. Although we lost some carriers, too. We did. Yorktown. Uh, The the Japanese lost four carriers literally in six minutes. It was six six minutes that changed the course of the world. And what's interesting, I've done my homework on this. I can see it. I'm impressed. What's interesting to me about what really turned that battle was that the Japanese decided to refuel their planes on the deck. And that's when we got them. Exactly. And and we we pay tribute to that, uh, those brave sailors on Midway with the Battle of Midway Theater that is included with admission with holographic characters uh, produced in Hollywood. So people from, again, from around the world and around the country get a sense of it was great history, but it was history forged by young men who were incredibly brave. And of course, you had the Japanese admiral who went down with the ship. Yes, there was obviously there was a great deal of loss of life on both sides uh, of what was truly a tragic battle, but again, one that turned the tide of the war. If you ever want to read great history because you learn so much from it, uh, there are three or four different books uh, on the Battle of Midway Maybe. that it's just one of the most remarkable things, especially as you said, Scott, that happened so soon after Pearl Harbor. That's a remarkable part. Uh, you know, there were ships that were badly damaged and somehow got back into the battle uh, at a time when clearly the war, the outcome of the war was uncertain, uh, to say nothing of Europe and what was taking place at that time. Uh, it's remarkable to think that from that point, only three years later, relatively, we'd won the war. Right. But if that battle hadn't happened, we would have been in real Who trouble. knows? It would have put yeah. Jap- the Japanese within range of the West Coast. Let's talk about the carrier itself, because it, it came in a year before the war ended, more or less, in World War II. The Midway? Yeah. Was commissioned one week following the end of World War II. Okay. But Just right, missed right the war. It, right. Yes. And then it sailed for the next 40... For, 47 years. years. You know, when you think about all that world history, much of which you and I experienced, to say yeah. nothing of our parents or grandparents, uh, international uh, crises from Vietnam to Korea to showdowns with Chairman Mao, Iranian hostage crisis, uh, Operation Desert Storm, Midway and her sailors were in the middle of almost every single one of those. I have to tell you that for me it has a particular note because when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, we were still having POWs in Vietnam. Remember, they didn't sure. come home until 73. Yes, that's right. And in fact, I was here at Miramar Naval Air Station when yes. when Senator John uh, uh, McCain? McCain came back. Yes. And and I, I we he and I both remembered that day very well because I was right there with him. But you take a look at where these guys were going from, the, the Navy pilots, a lot of them were going off, off carriers like the Midway. Absolutely. We have, and they're on our A-4s. And, uh, A-4 Skyhawks, yeah. F-4 Phantoms, yeah. Crusaders. Uh, we have 400 docents, nearly all of them Midway, all of them Navy veterans who volunteer their personal stories, sharing their stories with guests uh, every day on Midway. Many of them are Midway sailors. May, some of them are Midway aviators. And I know at least one who flew off the deck of this aircraft carrier, now a museum, and didn't come back because he spent two years in, in uh, as a prisoner of war. Exactly. So he likes to say he's launched off Midway one more time and he has landed, landed on Midway, and Midway still owes him one landing. Uh, Probably not going to happen now. No, I don't think so now. But I got a chance. I, I produced a movie many years ago uh, with Chuck Yeager called Red Flag mm-hmm. out of Nellis Air Force Base and uh, got a chance to fly just the entire inventory in the Air Force, either right seat or back seat. And mm-hmm. I flew the F-4, sure. the Phantom, which, as you know, was a plane that smoked. Oh, yes. And you, oh, my God, this plane smoked. But on the day that we shot this show, the guy who was flying our actor... They, had, they, they encountered a complete, full hydraulic failure. Oh, boy. So they had no hydraulics, and they were carrying live bombs. Sure. So they had to manually release the bombs, and now everybody's going, how are we going to land this plane? I said, no problem. It's a carrier plane. So they stretched a cable across the runway at Nellis Air Force Base, and he yeah. did a carrier landing on the runway. Uh, yes, you did, in a way. Uh, in the well, same- he also went to a net. Yeah, yeah, that helps, too. Because when pilots landed on Midway, Midway's three football fields long, yeah. 1,000 feet, 2,000 rooms. But if you talk to a Midway aviator who landed hundreds of times on Midway, his landing area was the size of a tennis court, 30 by 66. And he had to come in at full throttle. He was coming in. Well, he was slowing down about 150 miles an hour. But that, that tennis court was on the flight deck, of course. It was rolling. Up and down at night, in the rain, combat damage. He's coming in at 150 miles an hour, and he's got a and he's aiming for the net of a tennis court. Exactly, remarkable. And the reason why he kept the throttle going is if he missed it, he had to keep exactly. going. Exactly. As soon as he he touched down, if he thought he was going to miss, if he missed the wires, he would go give it full throttle because he didn't have time for someone to say give it some gas. 
Well, I'm in, I'm in awe and jealous of all the Navy aviator, aviators because the one thing I've yet to do and have always wanted to do was you, you can't put me on a roller coaster. I won't do it. Uh, it scares me because sure. I'm not in control, sure. of course. Of course. The one thing I've always wanted to do, three words, night carrier landing. I uh, I haven't done in the backseat night, but I've done daytime. And I'll tell you another aspect that you need to remember in terms of a, what we used to call an e-ticket ride, launching off a carrier. Yeah. Because you're going from zero oh, it's, to 160 miles an hour it's in the catapult. three seconds. It's the, the catapult. catapult. And the guys who are working on the deck, they better duck. Absolutely. It's a tremendous amount of trust training and teamwork uh, among more than 100, sometimes 200 men on the flight deck to launch and recover planes. And when you go to visit the Midway, you've got video of that. Oh, absolutely. There's video. We have uh, climbing uh, cockpits, F-14 Tomcats, the Phantom you were just talking about, Crusaders, where people can literally get in the cockpit and get a sense of what Goose and Maverick uh, experienced uh, only in real life. Well, after I finished my movie called Red Flag, that crew was hired and came down to do Hopcon. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yep. And right off Much here, of it right here, here in San, San Diego. Diego. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And the sad part about it is my stunt pilot, Art Scholl, uh, sadly lost his life during the filming of oh. Top Gun because as he was coming back from the carrier, he lost his vertical stabilizer. That and it. that That's was tragic. it. That was tragic. But yep. what an amazing guy he was. But to be able to shoot the air to air. Sure. Amazing. Yep. What's the yep. biggest surprise at the Midway? The biggest surprise is people coming aboard. They're they're just stunned, inspired, uh, awed, uh, being able to meet these docents. You know, most people don't uh, meet Midway aviators or, or aviators. By the way, for, we're not talking docents who just know about the painting on the wall. No, these are these guys who live there. These story. are not yeah. paid staff. Yeah, uh, these are people telling their personal stories about launching uh, in the rain and losing buddies on the flight deck, or the head cook, cook uh, talking about preparing thirteen thousand meals a day, or the chief engineer worrying about the consumption of a hundred thousand gallons of fuel a day, just so that ten percent of that forty-five hundred man crew ten. 10% could fly. Everyone else had city-like jobs so that 10% could get up in the air when the nation called. That's what inspires people. That's what really moves them when they come aboard Midway. When I was 12 years old, my parents took me on my first trip to Europe, and we were over the Mediterranean, and there was the fleet. Yeah. And my mother made friends. I don't know how she did this with the Admiral. The next thing you know, they invited us on board the aircraft carrier. It was the Constellation. Oh, the Connie, based yes. here in San Diego. Yep, but it was there. Yep. And the biggest thrill of my life, you know what it was? They had ice cream. Sure. Ice cream. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. As I've mentioned earlier on the show, this hotel is, is in, a, in a great position to be a hub, if you will, an enabler, going anywhere from, I'd say, up to 50 miles away, whether it's north, east. Uh, if you go west, you're in trouble. You'll be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But you, And if you go south, you're in Mexico. But north and east, you're in great shape. And one of the places you can go north on the way down here or on the way back to Los Angeles is a small little place called La Jolla, which I happen to love. And also, my next guest has a place right across the street from here. It's a, it's a pop-up gallery with a very interesting story. Her name is Tim. Uh, Tamara Glenn, she's with National Geographic Fine Art. I bet you didn't know National Geographic had fine art, but they do. And the cool thing about it is it's the photos, isn't it? It's all about the photography, Peter. And are we talking any particular kind of photography? Are we talking just landscapes? Well, this is all from National Geographic photography. So we have 130 years that we're celebrating. We have over 10 million photographs in our archives in D.C. So we select a small body of work quarterly to turn into the fine art format. They can be quite large and they look really powerful and beautiful in your home. And and I'm I'm a black and white freak. I mean, I happen to think the black and white prints are so much more powerful for the simple reason that they require you to have an imagination. Absolutely, Peter. We have several black and white uh, images available. Beverly Jobert is one of our stars from National Geographic. She's a big uh, star within the family. She's been with National Geographic for 30 years. She lives in the bush in Botswana, and we feature her work at our gallery. Let me guess. David Dubelay? Absolutely, David Dubelay. I know, I know yeah. David. Yes, absolutely. He's the underwater king. That's right. We have several of his works uh, in our gallery. Mm -hmm. And what's the biggest surprise when people come in there? Because, you know, you have a pop-up place right here across from the hotel. So that's the surprise that's in itself. 
Yeah, the biggest surprise, we get folks from all over the world that come in the gallery and they always want to know, is this on glass or is this on aluminum or how is this mounted? Because it's just so fresh, clean and contemporary. What it is, it's a true photograph developed in a dark room on Fuji crystal archive paper. So we're talking old school. Old school. Peter, that's right. And then it's encased in acrylic, which gives it the very contemporary, clean feel. Mm, beautiful. I mean, if you go back to the days of Ansel Adams, yeah, and and or uh, when he was out there doing all the John Muir stuff, I mean, that really hasn't progressed that far in terms of, of the techniques. No, you're absolutely right. Yes, that's right. It's developed in a dark room. We we use film. It's developed in a dark room, printed on paper, encased in acrylic, just like Ansel Adams. Uh, last month, I was in the Antarctic, and using my iPhone. Wow. And and I have to tell you, I switched to the black and white mode, and for at least one brief shining moment, I was Ansel Greenberg. That's amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. No, seriously. <laughs> I believe you. Oh, I'd love to see it. I will be glad to show it to you. It's And, you know, when you get to those particular regions, as so many of your photographers do, it's just you and the region. It's just you're by yourself. It's hauntingly silent. Uh, there's no there's no noise other than wind and whatever the temperature is you deal with that and you just wait for the light because so many of your photographs it's about waiting for the light absolutely you just hit on a very good point a lot of people dream about being a, a national geographic photographer but the reality is it's a rather lonely existence you're alone a lot in foreign land foreign food foreign people and you're alone a lot just waiting for hours sometimes for the magic to happen for the light to break through the clouds. I mean, when you talk to photographers like Steve McCurry and you ask them, you know, how did you get that shot? That's the question everyone wants to know. They waited. I mean, but they really waited. <laughs> and sometimes they got lucky, but you know what they say about luck? It's for the prepared. So, exactly. Mm -hmm. And for those people who are amateur photographers when they travel, please, it's not about you being in the photo. It really <laughs> isn't. Uh, we spend too much time documenting our experience and not enough time having it. However, if you do want to document it, you do want to wait for the light. It's the magic hour between 5 and 7 in the morning and the magic hour, depending on the time of the year, between 4 and 7 in the afternoon. You're absolutely right, Peter. It sounds like you're a really great photographer. Well, here's the thing. People get to the pyramids in Cairo at noon on a tour bus, the absolute worst time to take a picture. The best pictures you've ever seen of the, of, of, uh, the, the, the Great Wall in China or the Taj Mahal or the Sphinx in Cairo were at 5.30 in the morning. Wow, that's absolutely right. Right, and and in fact, every time I talk to photographers and said, when, where was your best photograph taken? They have two words for me, early light. Mm. Early light. That's when the magic happens. Exactly. Let's go. Where should we go first, Cairo? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> What's your most popular photograph? I would have to say it's, again, one of Beverly Jobert's works. It's called uh, Delta Herds, and it's so mysterious that uh, from a distance you're not really... Elephants? They're actually ze zebras ah, um, migrating. Because when you mentioned Botswana, that's the largest herds of elephants you're going to ever find. But. That's right. Yes, this is one of the few animals that actually migrate through water, and that's why Beverly captured it. From a distance, it looks like an impressionist painting, but as you move closer, you realize it's a photograph. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Most people, and I'm sad to say it, it is most people, when you, when you mention the word concierge, they get intimidated or they have no idea what a concierge does or they mistakenly believe that all concierges do is get theater tickets or find shoelaces. Uh, my next guest does a little bit more than that. In fact, he's been with this hotel since before it even opened. And this hotel opened, I think, back in 19, what, or 2004. 2004. 2004. And he's a member of the Clay Door, which is how I know him. And he can explain what Clay Door means. His name is Robert Marks, the head concierge here. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Peter. Thank you for having me no listen it's great i mean the biggest misconception about hotel concierges is what i just said correct i mean or people are just intimidated by you they are unfortunately they are they're hesitant uh, to approach us and they they're afraid that their question may not be the type of question a, a concierge can answer or that it's not important enough 
or that it's too trivial, possibly. Okay, let's go back to that. What's the most trivial question you've ever asked, you've ever been asked? I don't think there is a trivial question because a question really is a need. It's someone that has a, something that they need answered, and that's what we're here for. So any question has value. So regardless of what it is, we're always willing to assist and answer that question for the guest. And it's not just about stuff to do with a hotel or within a 30-mile radius. It could be anything. It could be anything. It could be anywhere. Uh, it could be any topic. Uh, we're a little bit of... of travel agent we're a little bit of therapist we're a little bit of uh, magician we do a, a little bit of everything now if only my therapist was a magician we would have solved a lot of problems a long time ago yes, <laughs> although they, he'd be out of a job hey here's my question yes. you got the navy here right we to do. me that's a that's an opportunity and a challenge for you because i mean I, I would like say hey robert can i borrow a destroyer and you could probably get me that we could do a lot of things. I don't know if I'd let you borrow the destroyer, but we could certainly get you up close to a destroyer. And, you know, we're fortunate that the Navy is a huge part of uh, the history of San Diego, and it's a huge aspect to who we are as a city. And but that goes beyond just the Midway. It goes far beyond the Midway. I, I, we're one of the largest military complexes in the world, San Diego. And uh, it's more than just the Navy. Uh, of course, the, the Marines are here, and, and we have uh, the, the Naval Air Station on Coronado and also up in uh, North County. So it's, a, an, it's an influence influencer in who we have within our city. And by the way, when I say you've got the Navy here, all you have to do is look out the window of this hotel and you're seeing the, the Stennis and the other aircraft carriers. You're seeing the planes landing on North Island. You're seeing all the Navy repair ships that are out there. I mean, it's a it's a never-ending theater. It is, and it's impressive. Uh, to see a carrier come in uh, from deployment into San Diego Bay is an overwhelming and a moving experience. That it, There's a majesty, really, when they arrive. Because uh, everybody's on the deck. Everyone's on the deck. The, the sheer size and scope of one of those aircraft carriers is uh, is overwhelming. I will say this. If you ever have a chance to get uh, an invitation to or an opportunity to visit and go on board an aircraft carrier, your life will change in terms of what you think. It is 6,000 people are on that ship. It's a floating city. Yeah. It's an absolute floating city, and it is a... Um, a floating uh, demonstration of America, of the United States. It's a, it's a huge representation of our country. You know, when they, when they developed the, the tank, that was just to intimidate people. When you just heard one fire, it didn't have to hit anything. You just surrendered, right? An aircraft carrier, though, is true power because you can see it operate and you can see what it can do. It, absolutely. And we're very fortunate uh, from, from our vantage point here, as you said, to be able to see across the bay, to see them in port when they're in port lined up on carrier row, uh, as we call it. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, we have the, uh, the very historic uh, USS Midway aircraft carrier here. Uh, and, and, as and, a museum. and let me guess, can you arrange an after hours tour? We can absolutely arrange an after hours tour on the Midway. Yes. For anybody? A, for, for, for anybody. Any guest that, that, that has any, we can make special things occur. All right. So speaking of special things, you've opened the door now, Robert. What's the craziest request you've ever gotten that you were able to actually fulfill? You know, I've had some interesting requests uh, in, in my career. And, you know, and to the person asking the request, to them, again, as I say, it's a need. But one of the ones that really comes to mind is a, a, an experience with a bride. And brides are unique individuals uh, because they have unique needs. And they're under Usually immediate needs. Immediate needs, yes. And they're under a great deal of pressure. Their wedding is a very important day in their <laughs> life. And it's one that they want to be perfect. And so... Uh, there was a bride who, it was the day of her wedding, and brides have bridal parties, and of course the, the maid of honor was a, a very important person in that bridal party, and her response, sole responsibility that day was to get the bridal gown to the bride, and she forgot to pick it up from the dry cleaner. And, whoops. Whoops. And unfortunately it was a Sunday, and the dry cleaner was closed, and there was no way to retrieve the gown from the dry cleaner. Or so they said. Or so they said. So they came to the concierge. And it was a matter of what do we do now? So that's when we do what we do best. We start thinking outside the box and looking at options. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. <laughs> 
I never come down to San Diego anymore without getting my next guest on the show because he's always got stuff to tell me I need to know and stuff you need to know. Uh, he's probably the uh, the premier fishmonger here in in, uh, in Southern California, and uh, he's fifth generation commercial fisherman. His name is Tommy Gomes. How are you, sir? Hey, welcome back to San Diego. Yes. I, okay. What's running? <laughs> I always say that. Yeah. What's running? Local uh, tuna's running. Uh, we have great offloads right now. You know, at one time San Diego was the largest tuna fleet in the world, and we have a, a long line fleet from Hawaii that's offloading here, and with that comes the beautiful fish like Big Eye Tuna, Opa, Mong Chong, Wahoo. But you just opened the door. You said at one time it was the largest tuna fleet in the world. What happened? Uh, rules, regulations, environmental impact. Um, we were forced to go offshore. Trips were longer and longer, and the commercial fishermen that were uh, the Italians, the Portuguese, and the Chinese, and the Japanese that were here in San Diego, we found that we were going to be gone for a year, year and a half. We would go into foreign ports, but we would miss our family, and that didn't work out too well. So the once proud American fleet is no longer, but what we are doing is we're bringing back longline boats into San Diego and offloading tuna here at the one-time tuna capital of the world. It was. It was, yeah. We were the largest fleet in the world right up until about 1985. But then, of course, if you read the John Steinbeck novels, it was Monterey. Sardines, yeah. yeah. Sardines up north and, yeah, tuna down here. And we boats would leave San Diego and go to Ecuador and, and all over the world and come back either to Puerto Rico, Hawaii, or San Diego, where we had so many canneries. There was Ralston Perina, A.J. Hines, Checkerboard Square, Bumblebee, Star Kiss, Top Wave, you name it. It was here. And during the war, um, San Diego supplied over 80% of the world's tuna, and one cannery was so big that it had its own can manufacturing company right outside the Omni Hotel here in downtown Gaslamp. Wow. Yeah, a little bit of history. I'll take it. Stinky fishy history. <laughs> But if I wanted to go down to the harbor today, and the harbor, by the way, is spitting distance from here, uh, and go out tuna fishing, could I do it? Yes, right now you can. There's, there, San Diego is also home to the largest sport fishing fleet. Uh, they're actually hotels. Literally, they are Class A accommodations with Class A crew with a giant bait tank on it. And you go out and catch tuna for go down into Mexico two or three or four days. Or right now, there's a local bluefin right off our coast right here within 20 miles of Point Loma. And, and uh, that's always a great fish to catch. Now you talk about a bait tank. That means you're using live bait. Yeah, live bait. See, I, recently when I went uh, yellowfin fishing, uh, yellowfin tuna fishing on the most remarkable place, we, we actually broadcast our show from there, the island of St. Helena. Uh, we didn't use any live bait at all. You just threw it in the, in the lure and boom, you got a hit. That's, that's what you call their chewing. They're eating the paint off the prop. Yeah. Yeah, it game on. Put it in the water and they eat it. So the most popular fish still coming into San Diego is tuna? Yeah, tuna. And we have a phenomenal local fishery here down at Fish Harbor. Um, Dockside Market every Saturday, the local commercial fleet come in and they sell their catch and, and wares right there on the dock, right outside the front door here at the Omni. Now, you work for Catalina Offshore. Yes, sir. And you guys you, you guys are the fish business. Yeah, we're a family-owned and operated company. Our, our founder and president, Dave Rudy, uh, for over 40 years here in San Diego, he's still hands-on. He's still still on the floor he's still cutting tuna and grading fish and putting price tags on them and weighing them and grading them and and everything and he is there every single day are you still grading the fish by doing the incision in the tail yep yeah we're doing checking that. for fat content checking for fat and color and texture and doing all that have you ever been to the to the tuna auction in japan i the first time i went there i was just a young boy and i really didn't appreciate it and then i got to go later on in life where i knew that i was going to be a fisherman and i was already fishing at that time, I had no idea that I was going to be a fishmonger. That Skiggy market is unreal. They're moving some product. They're moving fish. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. But going to that auction at five in the morning is astounding. Yeah. If you think the Barrett Jackson auto, auto show auction, yeah. Yeah, is something, the Skiggy market is absolutely. We're talking fish that are going for $25,000 a fish. Oh, yeah. A drop in the bucket. I mean, truly. I mean, it's, and don't raise your hand because you just bought it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you a story of a bluefin that we sold there uh, back in the late 70s. It was a little, it was just under, it was about 1,800 pound bluefin tuna. And that fish sold for $72,000. And that was in the 70s. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a fisherman. One of the most fascinating stories I ever read, this goes back maybe 25 years, was in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about a fisherman in Montauk, New York, right in Long Island, who... If he could just catch one fish, it was his salary for the year. Yes, sir. And he caught one. It was it was put on the Pan Am flight that night to Tokyo, and two days later, he had to he, he didn't have to work anymore. Yeah, I and mean, that, it, it, that was really the cause and effect of one fish. And that happens, you know it. 
it's not only do you have to catch it, you got to sell it too. And, and it's important that you get it sold within a reasonable amount of time because there's no such thing as a 90 day dry aged tuna steak. <laughs> it, this isn't a ribeye here. You know, we, we got as soon as that fish hits the deck, it is the clock is ticking because of the history and the heritage and the spirit of the animal. We need to treat that fish with respect and bring it in with the best quality product just because of the spirit of the animal and the tradition of fishing and heritage and all that. And as, as a customer, you need to ask, the right questions when you order fish yeah at a restaurant or at a retail counter you want to know country of origin and you want to know is it overfished where did it come from country of origin because honestly if your fish has more frequent flyer miles on it than your american airlines credit card there's a problem and local is getting smaller because our planet's getting smaller as our population grows so now local for me personally it's just my opinion local is uh, alaska canada u.s and mexico because you can source it faster you can source it faster tommy it's always a pleasure when are we going fishing you tell me i got a boat anytime you want to go oh he just gave me the magic words i got a boat i got a boat The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. the interest of full disclosure, when I first came down to San Diego, one of the things I was most looking to see, because I had already seen it so many times on The Tonight Show, was the San Diego Zoo, because in those days it was Joan Embry um, with Johnny Carson, always bringing on an animal that would basically relieve himself on Johnny's head. Uh, more or less. More or, more or less. less. I think they were hoping for that, yes. And the, po- and the vo- voice that you're hearing right now is, is Rick Schwartz from the San Diego Zoo, who is not only a wildlife expert, but I love it, it says a former senior keeper. It's tr- that's true. It's a yes. whole lot better than it's being a, a former junior keeper. Exactly. You know? Well, it's a title. You know, we're proud of it, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, look, the San Diego Zoo is iconic. I mean, it is one and the same for me. As you come to San Diego, you got to go to the zoo. Because you guys, I think, I mean, at least look, the Philadelphia Zoo is the oldest. But you guys were really the first to, to truly practice interactive. Well, we were the first on a lot of things. And yeah. it, it's really, it's a, a hat tip to our founder, Dr. Harry Wegeforth. I mean, this is a gentleman who was a surgeon. And in 1916, when he decided that uh, San Diego needed a zoo and there happened to be some animals left behind from the expo, uh, he really had the forward idea of not only doing something for the kids, but doing it right. And we had those open moat exhibits. We had opportunities for guests to interact with animals. And the, the rest is history. And we've always kind of been a step ahead of doing things uh, in a unique and leadership way but really i mean when i th- think about you know interactive programs where you know i'm not talking about go pet the lion I'm right, talking right. About, but i'm talking about you could actually have an experience oh absolutely yes and and that kind of and you idea. had the acreage to work with well having the acreage to work with and, and the idea is that it's you're not just there to see a lion or just to see a bear that when you go you're going to experience seeing lions in their natural habitat and some of the other animals that, that would reside in that area with them so an example you go to see tigers you see birds other mammals reptiles that are all part of that range rainforest where the tigers can be found and also yes there's beautiful tigers too right and very nervous birds What's the, you know, given the environment here, I mean, it lends itself to so many good things. But then again, if you're going to have polar bears, you have a challenge. Well, yes and no. It's uh, animal management and animal care really offers us the opportunity to leverage what we know. And so for our our summer bears, as we call them here, uh, the polar bears. summer bears. Summer bears. So the summer tundra bears are Do they have a summer collection too? Oh, yeah. And you should see their swimsuits. It's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Little floaties. Uh, No, we have their pool chilled, of course. And the diet is different. So a bear in the winter, cold of winter. Now you're talking about a, a bear from the Arctic. A polar bear. You yeah. mentioned polar bear, yes. Yeah. So as, uh, polar bears here in San Diego Zoo get a lot of California-type food, a lot of leafy greens, a lot of carrots, which they enjoy, and a low-fat diet. So that keeps their blubber count low. Well, so the, they the can... bears here do yoga, don't they? Uh, well, they used to. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to do Downward with bear feet. Bear. Yeah. 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 They have the bear feet for us. Yeah. So. But um, with that then, if we were going to send a bear to a northern zoo or something like that, we would increase the fat in the diet to increase their blubber, which is their winter coat. So we Manage through what we know about the science of caring for animals for the proper care for them. What's the biggest challenge for you in terms of, of an animal that you have at the zoo, a particular animal? Uh, the human animal is the biggest challenge by far. We have to corral them every day in through the front turnstiles and then get them out by the end of the day. It's it's a lot of work. And so you're tracking their habits? Yes. it's We do a lot of observations on the human animal, but still they're not without their challenges. Um, and of course, at the end of the day, the animals debrief each other on who came to visit them. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Late should, at night, they do see, this, don't they? You should see their Instagram. It's pretty funny. <laughs> 
But the bottom line is, not only did you do the interactive experiences early on, you're still doing overnights, aren't you? As far as the overnight camps? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Our safari park, which is a facility we have to the north of the San Diego Zoo. So we have the San Diego Zoo, which is just a stone's throw from where we are sitting right now. And then the safari park to the north, been around since about 1972. They have uh, the whole campground area. It's a permanent campsite. So when you buy into that adventure or that safari, you have the opportunity to have dinner catered to you. You have animal experiences. You spend the night there at the facilities. And then you get to do an early morning morning excursion and see what the keepers are doing as well. So if you go to San Diegozoo.org and you see a, a page then for the Safari Park or one for the zoo, the Safari Park is the one that has that really cool overnight camp. Attention parent, if you really want to have happy kids, try this program. I saw what happened in, in Honolulu of all places. They had a zookeeper for a day program mm-hmm. and it was like $10 and they that just included they would pick you up in a van and take you to the zoo, take the kids to the zoo, feed them a lunch and they really worked out with the zookeepers and the veterinarians and, and fed the animals and bathed them and did all the things that you guys do yeah and what happened was the parents loved it because the kids went every day yeah they just couldn't get enough of it yeah and we have our summer camps as well here at the san diego zoo and at our safari park then we have winter camps too for winter break and spring camps and so on and so forth so you're all one-stop shopping exactly exactly and uh, that's one thing i've often said you know um i've always enjoyed going to disneyland with my family but if you have a family group that has younger kids and older kids sometimes you got to divide and conquer for the rides that are more appropriate for everybody everyone has a great time i love disneyland the nice thing about the zoo when you go to the zoo, the whole family can stay together. You can have grandma and grandpa with you and the kids of any age, and everyone gets to kind of have this really cool experience together. But there's also opportunities into for individual experience like we were talking about earlier for the, for the camps or a zookeeper for a day. And on a more serious note, it's, a, it's one thing to go to a zoo and be sort of entertained, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and have that experience. And there's also the educational component. Absolutely. And the lessons that you learn that people need to apply once they leave the, I won't even call it the attraction, I mm-hmm. call it the zoo. I just came back from the Antarctic. And for those people who don't believe in climate change, Allow me to d- dis- disagree with you. I was out there in the summer months watching icebergs that were floating in, in the ocean there that were 13 miles long. Where did they come from? Well, we know where they came from. And so, and you see this also in the Arctic with the polar bears, they're losing their habitat. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking for a place to hang, yep. right? And you, the minute you upset that cycle, that balance is gone and somebody's eating something that they shouldn't be eating or eating more of it than they should be eating. And then we lose things. Absolutely. Uh, I think you bring up a very good point. As soon as we see something tip in the balance of what we see in a balanced ecosystem, it is, I mean, you can call it a domino effect, you can call it a cascading effect, whatever it may be, whether it's a temperature goes up a little bit or down a little bit or a certain predator is lost. Uh, all of a sudden, the influx is is catastrophic, uh, to say the least, to a balanced ecosystem, and it takes a lot to get it back. That said, it's not impossible. You know, conservation is what we refer to as a marathon or a long game. I think in our current world today, we, we look at a problem we want it solved, and we want to solve now. But the reality is it took a long time for us to get where we are with our challenges in conservation, and it's going to take a long time to get out of it. Luckily, we can manage a lot of these human-caused problems. I mean, we went actually from Ushuaia in Argentina. We sailed to the Falkland Islands, and then, of course, through the Drake Passage. But even before we got to Antarctica, we were seeing the effects of climate change in the Falkland Islands with the penguin rookeries, where this is the time of the year where they're they're hatching yeah. their chicks and they're nesting, and they're not that many. Right. I mean, the numbers are down significantly. Yeah, and the, the thing is we're losing generations of these birds. Uh, it's a challenge. In fact, we're facing, we're doing a lot of work with the African penguin. A lot of people don't know there are penguins in Africa. Oh, South, I know there are. Oh, listen. I'm sure you know. But. That, but I want to tell you the difference between the penguins in South Africa and the penguins in the Antarctic. You better wear a long rubber glove when you're dealing with the penguins <laughs> in South Africa because they will bite your arm off. Yeah, they can be aggressive. The yes. penguins in the Antarctic are like, hello, hey, what's how up, are you? Friend? Let's go. Let's well, go. it's but, to a good point. They have to yeah. be aggressive. They have dealt with decades of people coming in robbing their nests for the eggs as a yeah. delicacy for yeah. eating. Uh, they've been had their nests raided because it's, there's a lot of guano buildup, which is yeah. important. It acts like adobe to an, in sort it of uh, insulate the nest. But guano is high in nitrogen, which is great for farming and agriculture. So they have to be aggressive. That's, that's a survival at this point. And one of the things a lot of zoos are doing right now, because there's no guano left, the eggs are not hatching or they're getting stolen by predators, we're creating a man-made nest to kind of replace that guano adobe structure. And we're using them in zoos right now and letting the penguins show us which one's going to be the most effective for them. And once we have that figured out, so they're teaching you. Right, exactly. That's the value of zoos is we learn from the animals and we can deploy that then to the wildlife out in the wild and hopefully curb the damage being caused by that. So Boy. one of the many, many things you, you mentioned, you know, going to the zoo is a great attraction and all that, and, and it is. And we hope that when you come to our zoo or any zoo, honestly, you have a wonderful time. And we hope through that wonderful time we spark and inspire you to maybe ask what's going on and we can throw some education in there and maybe you'll walk out. God forbid education. <laughs> maybe you'll walk out asking, 
what can I do to help? And we have all those answers for you on what you can do to help. Simple stuff at home, simple stuff around your environment, or you can take it to the next level and also help do fundraisers for groups that are actually doing the work on the ground around the world to save these species. Yeah, because it's one thing to go to the zoo. It's another thing to get out in the wild and when you can see it up close and personal and someone can put it in context for you. Yes, absolutely. That's when you have a problem because now you have to come back and try to explain it to everybody else who only just saw it at the zoo but couldn't answer those questions. Exactly, exactly. And that's the value in what you do. You help through your program expose people to travel opportunities around the world. And I have some, I've traveled to several, we have over 100 conservation sites around the world we as an organization are working on. I've had the pleasure to travel to a handful of them and I see firsthand what's going on. And I see also how a lot of these communities are figuring out if we can get ecotourism in here, it'll help force the local communities to protect the wildlife instead of trying to use the land for other purposes. And so it, it benefits everyone. It gives oh, sure. opportunity for people to see what's going on and then also... The biggest challenge is to convince locals that animals are worth more to them alive than dead. Yeah, and the nice thing is a lot of them are starting to realize that now, yes. which is wonderful. We saw that in Rwanda, by the way. Yes, the yes. The former There's poachers are programs. now the wardens. Yes, yeah. Unbelievable. Where are the wagon? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own? About my, my next guest will give us all the food opportunities within a 40-foot radius of where we are right now. He basically runs food and beverage here. David Richards, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, you have a 500-room hotel here, and people don't really understand infrastructure. They don't understand process. And I'm one of those guys who believes that if you can understand the process, that's when you value the product. And until that happens, it just doesn't mean anything. Um, to give everybody a sense of place here, and if I haven't said it before, I will again, you're located right next to the stadium here, right? Petco Stadium, that's where the Padres play. And you can literally walk from here. And literally walk, you're connected to the stadium. So yes. so as a food operation, right, when, when, when the game is on, you guys are heavily tasked it's yes it's very exciting down in the lobby our uh, outlets are uh, running in uh, full blast and uh, see a lot of excitement before the game after the game as well but you're heavily tasked because you don't have you have a limited amount of time to deliver that food because people have other things to do like go to the game or go home yes we are heavily and by the way if the Padres are playing they're going home because the Padres haven't done very well hopefully this year right hopefully this year okay so how do you how do you basically deliver those kinds of meals that fast you know we um, kind of cater to our fans too and what they're looking for and a lot of it is uh, beer beer easier to go foods <laughs> wings tacos being in southern california so as it's, well, ke it's, big ke it's keep it simple yes sir you're not doing a, a, a very elaborate meal no nope, burgers sliders wings trying to keep it simple and fast and and the biggest challenge for you guys uh the biggest challenge i would say um just uh um, turning the tables quick enough to help our next guest. Well, it's a challenge in any restaurant, I know. I noticed that you were at the old Roosevelt Hotel, the, or I should say the new Roosevelt Hotel, which is the, the old Fairmont uh, in New Orleans. Yes. Which, which, and by the way, they have the Sazerac Bar. They do. Right, and they still do it. Yes, I was part of the opening team there, and yeah, they had reopened uh, the old Sazerac Bar. I mean, if you, if you go to New Orleans, you know, so many of the hotels there have great history that you have to peel, literally peel back the wallpaper to realize it. Like, you know, the Montiglione and, and, and of course, the Roosevelt. The Roosevelt was just sitting there. I mean, it was doing nothing, for, right? It was closed. Yes, yeah, and those are the original murals inside the Sazerac from uh, the 1920s when they had put them in place. What I loved about that about the Roosevelt is that vault. Yes. The, the, the vault next to the front desk. Yes. Yeah, very cool. Now, this is a hotel that's been open for about 15 years, yes. right? Location, location, location is, is the cool thing here, right? I mean, literally, you can walk to the convention center walk you're in gas lamp you're walking to petco stadium i mean for a city that's already a walkable city this is a home run this is this is a great location for our guests and fans of the padres all right now forgetting the padres right now because it's january and spring training hasn't even started yet the pitchers and catchers i think are coming up pretty soon but for the rest of the season, what are you putting on the menu? You know, um, what we do, uh, Omni as a brand has a great different quarterly promotions they roll out. And right now we're actually rolling into minis, which is coming out February 1st, which are miniatures from across the brand where uh, chefs sent in their recipes and we selected um, five different um, savory and two sweet. And one of our actual chefs here, Chef Mauricio, uh, Enriquez, his recipe was actually one of the ones that was um, um, accepted. Um, and what we're doing is actually uh, and, what, um, and what is that recipe it's a crispy polenta um with a duck cone fee mole so it's just a small bite and the uh, guest has the option of three to five pick your uh pick however many you'd like as well as different uh, drink options as well we have paired with it now you have 24-hour room service yes we do 
I don't understand hotels that don't, right? And, and so many hotels are getting rid of it. You know, the Hilton in New York now just has a grab-and-go thing in the lobby. That's it, right? And hotels will always argue that, well, the reason why we don't do room service now is because we couldn't make any money. But if you have a kitchen and you're in, a, you're in an international gateway city, which San Diego, believe it or not, is, you got to keep a 24-hour room service operation. Yes, and uh, we have had great success with it, and our guests love it, and uh, we're going to continue to have it. Although, let's be honest, and you've had this history, a lot of hotels, that room service menu is quite limited yes especially after 11 o'clock at night so it's 24-hour room service if you want ice cream or if you want a burger right yes can you get beyond that after 11 o'clock yes we actually uh, have quesadillas and a few different options that our culinary team has put together a lighter options but uh quesadillas burgers as well as pizza um wings which is a we're back to the back to the wings back to the wings how about popcorn popcorn no unfortunately we do not Get it on the menu. You can't you can't mess it up. No. Right? I think everybody should have a microwave in the room with popcorn. That would be my room service. It's a good idea. You gonna get on that? I will work on that one. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.